0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. hello and welcome to the history extra podcast from bbc history magazine britain's best-selling history magazine i'm ellie cawthorne if you think of muslim christian relations in the middle ages you'd be forgiven for assuming that we're going to be talking about the Crusades. But in fact, relations between people of the two faiths were not always characterised by conflict. In today's episode, our content director, David Musgrove, chats to Dr Mike Carr about papal sanctioned trade between Christian and Muslim merchants during the medieval period.
1: Today, I am joined by Dr. Mike Carr, who is lecturer in late medieval history at the School of History, Classics and Archaeology at the University of Edinburgh. And we are gonna talk today about medieval trade between Christians and Muslims, which is a fascinating topic. So, Mike, um, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. First up, uh in my intro, I said medieval trade between Christians and Muslims. Do you want to sort of narrow down the period at all? What's what's the what's the chronological time span that we're investigating?
2: Yeah, sure. So I mean I suppose I'm looking um mostly at the at the later Middle Ages. That's sort of my my area of, of research. So probably around thirteen hundred to fifteen hundred. But um also I'm you know, I suppose my work is is relevant to to the period that slightly comes before that as well so probably overall looking at about i don't know say the, the 11th to the to, to the to the 15th century so sort of the yeah the latter half of, of the middle ages
1: and, and what's our geographical area i mean people can no doubt uh imagine listeners will, will know about the crusades and that sort of thing but where roughly were the main areas of christian muslim contact during this period
2: well mostly in the um in the south and, and east of the of the mediterranean so I'm looking specifically at trade between Christians and Muslims in in the Aegean and Asia Minor and also in, in the Levant. Um, in Egypt and North Africa as well, so that's sort of the main, the main sort of hubs of of exchange um, in in those areas of the Mediterranean. And what what sources help us to understand that?
1: What uh, what are your historical records? Uh,
2: well, there's a real mixture. So there's, there's quite a lot of um, documentary sources, trade records, notarial records, sort of you know contracts and those kinds of things, treaties made between uh, different Christian and Muslim traders and, and rulers, uh, but also papal sources. So so what I'm especially focusing on. Is as, as sources from, from the papacy um, and travel narratives, uh, pilgrimage accounts, things like that also, you know, give us quite a lot of information about um the situation in, in these um in, in these lands and, and what was going on in, in regard to trade. But it's it's mostly documentary evidence, so so stuff like contracts and, and notarial records and things like that.
1: Quite a lot to go on historically. I, I guess there's quite a lot of archaeological evidence as well. Does that play into your into your research?
2: Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, of course. So yes, there is a, I mean a lot of material. Material evidence of the kinds of stuff that was that was shipped back and forth, and the um, archaeology of, of Latin settlers and traders in, in the Levant and in, in Muslim lands. So yeah, that does does play into it um, as well. I mean, I mostly focus on the um, on the documentary sources, but yeah, of course, the archaeology and the material record really helps to, I suppose, flesh that out and, and give some really sort of good examples of the kinds of things that that you read about in the sources. Brilliant. Now, I
1: mentioned the Crusades in, in my in my setup just there. Um, a, a lot of People coming to uh, to the Middle Ages to, to sort of researching or reading about the Middle Ages will be aware of the Crusades and uh, will, will sort of understand that as a clash between Muslims and Christians, which perhaps we'll we'll talk about as to how accurate that is um, in the course of this conversation. But I guess that kind of that must overshadow the, a research topic looking at, uh, at um, medieval trade between uh, people of those two religions, right?
2: Yeah, it does. I mean, it really has a, has a massive impact. I mean, one of the I suppose the ironies of the Crusades. That they lead to the 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 occupation of the Levant by um, by Latin Europeans for for several hundred years, and also the expansion of trade in those regions of of Latin Christian trade. So it's sort of yeah, an irony that, that the Crusades that sort of. In some ways, presented as this this sort of conflict of, of two religions, but also they open the way for trade between, seen the Latin West and the Islamic world in a way that hadn't occurred um, before before the Crusades. Um, so, really, I'm I'm looking at that as a, as a backdrop. It's sort of the gateway, if you like, into contact between Christians and Muslims, and especially commercial contact. But obviously, it's Completely tempered by the, you know, all the sort of um, religious uh, conflict as well. So it's really, uh, I suppose, what I'm looking at is how these um, these merchants, you know, balanced, you know, religious um, uh, conflict with with commercial gain, and, and how they sort of got around these yeah, uh, these seemingly very opposite characteristics. I suppose. Sure.
1: So, just in terms of chronology, just for for our listeners who aren't um, aren't, aren't super clued up on this, so uh, Crusades sort of kick off. 1090s what, what's the what's the what's what's the what's the main framework here that we should be aware of
2: yeah so so the first crusade say from from around to 1095 um and the um uh and then the crusader states that established um in the wake of the first crusade they survive in one form or another until 1291 um and that's when uh, acre which is the last sort of outpost um in the levant falls so so the main period the traditional period of the crusades to uh to the Holy Land is yeah is from roughly 1095 to 1291, um, but then after that point, um, you have attempts to recover Crusader states in the in the 14th century, um, and then Crusades launched against the uh, the Ottomans, which you know persist right into the into the early modern period. So, crusading has you know sort of a very long uh, legacy, but the traditional period of the Crusades to the Holy Land is is really 1095 to 1291 thanks
1: so this, this is this is clearly a complicated picture then because it, when you look at the crusade from a military perspective clearly there was there was violence but there was as your research uh, tells us that actually during that whole period there was also trade going on as well so that's that's quite an interesting sort of thing to just be aware of isn't it that there that there can be these two seemingly mutually conflicting things happening
2: yeah yeah exactly and I, and i think often in the uh, i suppose in our perception of the crusades and in in the sort of research that's done on it usually those things are, are looked at has been sort of separate, really. You have, you know, a lot of the a lot of work on the you know the military side, the Crusades, and then lots of people looking at, at trade between Christians and Muslims, and and somehow that yeah, that's sort of you know the two things are, are not really sort of brought together. And and I suppose w- what I'm looking at is is the fact that the you know tr- trade and Crusade and you know conflict and 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 commercial exchange they're, they're sort of t- Part and parcel of the same thing in, in some ways, and they they weren't always mutually exclusive.
1: So um, let's let's uh, drill into the uh, position of the papacy on this then, because you mentioned that that's one of your sources, one of, well one of your your key most interesting research sources. So uh, the papacy advocated for. The Crusades for the launch of the First Crusade, and yet they're also allowing for trade. So, what was the attitude of the Papacy towards trading contact between Christians and Muslims? Are you able to give us a, a, an over? I imagine it changes over time and and, uh, and different popes. But what what was the general sense?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's um, it, as you say, it does change, and it, it is quite um, complex. But it's. Yeah. It's sort of contradictory as well. So so on the one hand, what the popes do, as you say, they, they proclaim the, the crusades, um and they also they actually ban trade with Muslims. So they have this embargo, which basically means that if you are trading with Muslims, especially in war materials, um, then you can be excommunicated, you can have your merchandise confiscated and so forth. So so on the one hand the, the papacy aims to completely restrict trade with, with, with Muslim groups, and this is part of it's Crusading ambitions, I suppose. It's you know this goes in tandem with the military expeditions. The the fact that you're you're also you know having this this trade embargo against your um, your enemies. But then on the other hand, and this is the stuff I'm sort of looking at that the papacy also grants exemptions to its own ban, um, and these start to come in sort of later on. So it does actually allow people to trade with Muslims, but only under certain conditions, and they have to receive these special permits from the papacy um, in order to do this. So you have this seemingly very contradictory policy, I suppose, a trade ban on the one hand, and then exemptions to the ban on the other hand. And that's what I'm sort of trying to... Pick out the you know the details of, of these two seemingly conflicting facets of, of papal um, policy.
1: Okay, so we'll talk about those, the, the, the specifics of these trading licences in a second. But but just when you say that the, the contradiction, the seeming contradiction, it's kind of an obvious contradiction when you when you describe it here. Can we was it an obvious contradiction to the popes at the time? Were, were people scratching their heads saying how how can how can you have these seemingly mutually difficult positions?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a really difficult question in that, uh, and this is one of the one of the problems that I have is is our sort of I suppose the accounts of people who you know commented on on the papacy and the papal crusade policy they they don't really talk about the economics in a great a uh, great amount of detail. So actually, this this thing that the popes did, this granting of the licenses and stuff like that. We, you know, we, we, there's not a huge amount of criticism of that as far as I can work out. Um, and actually, if anything, people who are promoting the Crusades and who are, you know, planning, you know, recommending to the Pope's different strategies, they actually do advocate for these these licenses. So if anything, it's something that contemporaries support, I think probably because they realise that, you know, some sort of trade with with the Islamic world is is necessary. So it's a sort of, I suppose it's a pragmatic measure that, the popes adopt and which seems to be actually fairly well supported um and i don't really know of a great deal of criticism of it in and of itself but it it might be that it that there was a you know there was criticism but it's just just not really been recorded
1: okay so we've got we've got records of these
2: trading licenses which
1: were issued and they were they issued from like the late 12th century onwards is that about right
2: yeah, yeah, it's about right. So, so f- yeah, th- I mean, they mostly they mostly come about in the in the 14th century. So that's when they sort of really come out in in in, in huge numbers. But yes, the, the first one um, is 1198, and then there's a, a few in the in the 13th century, and then and the most in the 14th century. So so yeah, so, so so late 12th century.
1: And roughly speaking, how many of these licenses were issued? Can we can you put a number on that?
2: Yeah, so the so the ones that I'm looking at so from the from the first in 1198 up till I suppose the end of the 14th century, I've uncovered I don't know about 600 or so of these, but there might be many more. There is a, a, some issues with sort of how they're recorded, and and I think probably a lost a lot have been have been lost now. So there probably were many more than than actually um, survive at the moment. But you're talking about you know. A, you know, quite a few hundred of of these um, kept in in sort of various archives. Okay, so
1: I I was going to say, so they're not not in the Vatican archives,
2: are they all around the place? They're mostly in the Vatican archives, but some of them do survive in other archives as well. Um, So in all records of them so in venice and barcelona and places like that um and that's one of the issues we have that the, you know the popes are pretty good at recording the stuff that they sent to people and the the sort of the petitions that that came in for for ver- various um favors and things like that but but obviously some of these records are lost um some of them don't you know aren't extant for certain years or whatever so in those periods where where we have a gap in the papal sources, that we can find stuff um, in in archives of the other maritime cities, you know, I'm I'm thinking there's probably a lot more than than, than what survives at the moment and, and the ones that I've been able to find. And are there particular popes or particular
1: periods when there were a lot more licences issued than other times? Were some popes obviously really keen on on encouraging trade?
2: Yeah, yeah. So the, so the Avignon popes in particular. So in the in the 14th century, they're the guys who really seem to grants a lot of these licenses. Um, especially Clement the Sixth, who is um the Pope from um the thirteen forties and early thirteen fifties. Um he's the guy who really, yeah, ups the numbers of these things. And again, the sort of I mean I've I've you know had Slight trouble trying to, you know, square the circle of, is, you know, is this just because there's a lot more sources preserved for his pontificate? And is it, you know, are, are the numbers just because of the preservation of the sources or was he actually granting more than than other popes? And, and there are some questions about that that, you know, I, I don't really know the answer to. But but for his pontificate anyway, we have far more than we do for previous popes and then the subsequent popes after him. Also, um, there's a lot of survivability of, of these uh, of these records.
1: This is a complicated thing that I'm going to ask you to distill very quickly. But you mentioned the Avignon Popes. There, um, if listeners aren't familiar with with why popes were based in in France for a period, could you could you just very quickly summarise what? that was? <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, sure. So um, uh, at the end of the um, of the of the 13th century, there's basically a big conflict between the, the King of France and and uh, and the Pope and the papacy at the time, it, it, for various reasons, is is not really able to reside in Rome. It's travelling around. There's Lots of conflicts in Rome and things like that. And uh, yeah, it's under pressure from the kings of France and from other secular rulers. And eventually, um, the papacy, it's um, its actually located in the south of France anywhere. It's sort of moving around, um, the court's sort of itinerant. Um, and it re- ends up residing in Avignon, which is actually a papal enclave. It's not part of the Kingdom of France at the time. And they do this from around 1309 or so um, under Pope Clement V. And they reside in Avignon until the 1370s. After that, they return to Rome, but then also you have rival popes in Avignon, so you have a great schism where you have popes in Rome and popes in Avignon simultaneously. So it sort of gets even more confusing <laughs> in the uh, in the 15th century. That's that's great. That's that's en- that's
1: enough schism for for one podcast. <laughs> uh, so, so so right. So these trade licenses
2: uh, are they a good read? Um, (laughs) I'd like to say they are, but um, no, they're actually, they're they're very formulaic. There's rules of the papacy, which meant that people had to write and present their petitions to the popes in a very specific style and a very um, specific wording and formula and stuff like that. So all these documents are recorded in a a very formulaic manner. They conform to certain... uh, certain conventions. Having said that, what they do have some of them is they have clauses attached to them. So the popes would add clauses to these licenses and the merchants themselves would also add extra bits of detail um to them in order to to get the get the grants um issued to them. So so in a way if you look at them on an individual basis, the, yeah, they are quite formulaic and a lot of them, you know, don't vary too much, but then there's enough of them which have these clauses and and have differences in them which enable you to sort of piece out quite interesting um, details
1: and these are all in latin i assume
2: yeah yeah they're all all um yeah sort of medieval latin
1: so uh you mentioned the merchants there so what sort of people are getting these licenses
2: well, yeah, Latin merchants, um, mostly from the sort of big mercantile cities that you'd imagine. So Venice and Genoa, quite a few from the su- um, south of France as well, places, you know, Marseille. Also merchants from the Crown of Aragon, so from Barcelona, and the Balearics, um, places like that. Southern Italy too, um, and then Latins in the Levant. So I have some records of... Um, of uh, Italian merchants resident in uh, Egypt who get licences, also some uh, Italians in the Black Sea, um, quite a lot in Greece as well, Um, and also some Greek merchants, which is quite odd. Um, And presumably they've converted to Catholicism in order to to get these licences. So it's a real mixture. Um, So in a way, if you're looking at the Mediterranean, the the licences give you information for people from all all areas of, of the Latin Mediterranean especially so from yeah Cyprus to the Black Sea to you know to, to Iberia so they yeah they do cover a, a huge geographical range. And have you been able to work out the process of actually getting a license did did the
1: merchant have to go to Rome or Avignon and, and make a formal declaration of intent?
2: Yeah 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 some of them did I mean um, they don't all go in person um, often what you could do is you could send a, a proctor in your place who would basically make the petition for you and there's a lot of really good research at the moment being done on, you know, the bureaucracy of the papacy and how, how this how this all happened. Uh, but yeah, but some merchants, we, we know from their licenses, they did actually travel all the way to to Avignon. Some of them were also ambassadors. So I've come across, for example, some Cypriot ambassadors that are going to the papacy for, for diplomatic reasons, and they also get licenses while they're there. So there's a lot of people sort of, you know, happen to be traveling to the papacy who might be on other business who, who also petition for these things as well. And I suppose with travel being so you know so time consuming and expensive and, and dangerous at that time, if you know, if you knew people that happened to be going to the paper street, I suppose it made sense to combine several, you know, tasks at once. And yeah, so these people would be um, traveling there and, and and getting these licenses themselves.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: So it's not just sort of trade between Christians and Muslims per se, which we knew existed throughout this time, but it's the fact that the popes who are the promulgators of crusade, also, in a way, legitimize and um, trade with Muslims um, under certain conditions. So yeah, I suppose it is this um, emphasis on, on the complexity of, of, the, uh, of the period as well.
0: Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mic Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
1: This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. one imagines there's a, a fee attached to getting a license or is the is the papacy demanding some sort of cut on
2: on profits from the trade so sometimes we do know that the the money exchange hands the venetians for example pay quite a lot um for for certain licenses that they get um also the papacy what it does do as opposed to taking a, a cut of the profits for itself it it's states that the merchants have to donate a cut of the profits for other things. So, for example, I know of a, um, a Sicilian merchant who has built a hospital um, to care for sort of sick and infirm people, and he is granted a license to, to basically, so he can use the profits to, to pay for this hospital that he's built. Um, other times the proceeds are used for funding crusades as well. So, so the papacy is basically taking... Sort of taking cut of the license, but it's it's used for these ostensibly pious um, activities of, of the people that are asking for them, and I suppose one of the big questions is are p- do people. Add this kind of stuff into their petitions in order to improve their chances of getting the license. So I think there's a lot going on in terms of how pe- what kinds of things people say in order to um, to sort of curry favour with the popes and get a favourable outcome um, when they're in Avignon.
1: Okay. Yes. And uh, and I guess we then don't know whether they fulfilled their their side of the
2: bargain. <laughs> Not always. We do sometimes. I uh, have some information about you know merchants who are uh, they. Yeah, they're, they're sort of going on crusade, and and they're unable to pay the wages of the people fighting with them. They then get a license, and and that seems to sort of uh, cover the salary costs of the people um, who they owe owe money to. So I. I <laughs> You know the, the <laughs> concrete evidence of this is difficult to find but but I think there's enough there to suggest that in certain circumstances that the licenses do do help in in sort of covering costs of certain things
1: so did you also need to have to prove that you weren't going to be uh, selling anything or buying anything that would sort of in any way, stymie a crusading effort.
2: Uh, there is some some good work um, that's been done on on especially Islamic jurists and their um, their concerns about certain commodities and certain um, certain things that are traded with um, with Christian uh, merchants. And I suppose uh, certain things have a have a sort of spiritual significance in Islam, um, and these are these are restricted. Um, however, there isn't, I suppose, the the equivalent of a of a pope in the especially in the, in in the later period this sort of religious authority i mean a caliph in in theory does have that but, but not this sort of overarching religious authority that can um i suppose issue a, a sort of prohibition that is um supposedly you know going to be supported by um, by people throughout um the mediterranean so so yes it happens but it's more on a sort of localized um level i think
1: okay so so the obvious question that, that I'm not sure we've we've answered and maybe I should have asked right at the top um is given the context of this given the crusader context and the and the papal embargo why why were popes making these ex- exemptions why were they allowing this trade what was driving them to to allow this to happen
2: well I think there's um I mean a number of reasons for this um I suppose there is the the pragmatic side of things you know at the end of the day to try and ban all trade with the islamic world is is difficult the papacy doesn't have a fleet that can do this so in a way if you're trying to prevent something that's going to happen anyway one way that you get around that is that you legitimize it but under certain conditions so i think part of it is just the papacy trying to have some control over something that is you know it's going to happen anyway so they might as well control it um, and in doing so, they're therefore an, able to to manipulate trade and so bring, you know, I suppose dictate what who merchants are trading with. They can make some sort of um, money from it. They can uh, influence trading practices and things like that. So it's a way in which the papacy can can have some sort of control over something which, um, you know, historically it's not really been able to to to, to control in, in any great detail. Um, so I think that's 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 one of the the answers to that, and also something which I suppose fits into that is um, what I mentioned before about piracy and the fact that Latin merchants are attacking one another, you know, as a you know a pretext of, to enforcing the embargo. I do think by the by the later period, the you know the, the situation in the Mediterranean is not conducive to the launching of a new crusade. It's not conducive to the unity of Christendom, which is what the papacy is essentially trying to trying to gain Um, so actually by by again regulating this trade and allowing it but under certain conditions it brings everything back under the under the control of the popes um and it just sort of legitimizes it and it plays into notions of papal power i suppose if people have to go to the papal court to ask for these things they are subordinating themselves to the popes and that's what the papacy wants is it's, it's to have authority over over the faithful so you know, it's it's a way in which it gains authority and control, yeah, over something that really it, it would be very it'd be almost powerless to 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 influence um, in any other way.
1: And it, and as we talked about earlier, it wasn't really that much of a money making venture on the part of the papacy. Then that wasn't a key driver.
2: Um, I uh, yeah, not no, not a massive driver. I think they do make some money from this, but it's very difficult to sort of you know come up with concrete amounts, and I certainly don't think it's something that... Um is necessarily driving the the paper safe, um, in, in terms of this policy?
1: Um, so when I was um, when I knew I was going to be chatting to you about this, just doing a, a bit of reading around, it, I was reminded of a piece we ran on our website, and I'll put a, a link in the show notes to this, uh, where we just asked some historians to comment on uh, sort of the the long term significance of the Crusades. And uh, Professor Suleiman uh, Muraid had some interesting comments, uh, which uh, I think you're sort of speaking to with your research. He he made the point that there were um, there was time of War in this period, but there's also a time of diplomacy, alliances, friendships, and commerce, and the exchange of science and knowledge. Um, and 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 his point was that the complex legacy of the Crusader period in the middle Middle East is little known. And he he argues that that's because historians tend to focus on the violence of the Crusades. And, and I guess so. you're you would be sort of answering his call there to not focus on that and to and to allow a little bit of the complexity of this period to show through.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I, and and I think I agree. To an extent that I suppose traditionally, you know, yeah, people have looked at the Crusades and looked at the the military conflicts, and you know, and and sort of not necessarily engaged with the with the complexity and looked at, at trade and, and exchange and, and things like that. I mean, I think probably um, you know, scholarship is. It's starting to to change in that regard, and certainly I think over over you know last few decades that you know more more, uh, more scholars are looking at the, the sort of the non-violent aspects of of, um, of crusading. But but certainly with the stuff that I'm looking at, it's yeah, it, it is emphasising that complexity. And I suppose what makes it even more complex is it that they are papal sources talking about trade. So it's not just sort of trade between Christians and Muslims per se, which we knew existed throughout this time. But it's the fact that the popes, who are the promulgators of crusade, also, in a way, legitimised crusade and trade with Muslims um, under certain conditions. So yeah, I suppose it is this um, emphasis on on the complexity of, of the uh, of the period as well. So as we sort of wrap up, if I asked you to take
1: a big picture view uh, and maybe, you know, bringing in other research or, or, or other things you've looked at, what does this tell us about, uh, you know, we we tend perhaps um, in the UK, perhaps in, in the West, we tend to have a view that the Middle Ages was one where there was this like, uh, there was this fundamental opposition between Christians and Muslims, going back to the to the point we just talked about. Uh, and then, as you said, there's been a lot of research that suggests that's not the case. There wasn't necessarily a fundamental opposition. But so what was the nature of of Christian-Muslim relations, in your view, during this period, and you know, pick pick a moment if you like, because I'm asking you to to talk about you know, hundreds of years and, and a big geographical area. But but can you can you give us some sort of top level answer to that?
2: I'll talk about the sort of you know the period of the Crusades and probably the the sort of the period that that, that comes ju- just afterwards. Um, I think it's important to realise that you know Christian-Muslim relations can never be completely detached from. Um, the background of crusading and religious conflict, to some extent, I think that's always always a backdrop, and it's something that the Latin Europeans are always um, conscious of. But for the people that I'm looking at, for the merchants and the people of of the Mediterranean, that doesn't that didn't sort of mean that you couldn't trade and you shouldn't trade and and turn a profit and you know have a livelihood that's based on on contact with Muslims. Um, but it was always done under certain conditions. You couldn't just trade in whatever you liked because then you'd get excommunicated. If you went to the, to Egypt, for example, um, you could sell your goods, but you would probably stay in a, a merchant hostel or something like that, um, where you would deal with specific people, specific locals, um, and you probably wouldn't mix. You wouldn't sort of walk around the marketplace. You might do, but that was probably restricted to certain people. So again... You have trade and you have contact, but it's always sort of with a, a caveat. So I don't think we should see the Middle Ages as a time of you know pure sort of multiculturalism in the in the Eastern Mediterranean. I think that's that's going too far. But at the same time, you know there was pragmatism. People could make money and they could live their livelihoods, and and the west the Western economy at the time. Um, you know, is very much reliance on Mediterranean trade, you know, especially the Italian economy and the, and the Genoese and the Venetians. And these are the same people that also defend Christendom from um, the supposed enemies um, uh, in the East as well. So on the one hand... You know, trade of Muslims is you know it, it, it sort of goes hand in hand, I suppose with um with with defence of the faith as well. So I think the two things they can never be separated in Christian Muslim contacts um, are incredibly complex and and um and and I suppose pragmatism um, was equally as important as um as religious difference at the time.
0: That was Dr. Mike Carr of the University of Edinburgh. If you want to follow up on the article that David Musgrove mentioned by Suleiman Murad, you can find it at historyextra.com. Just search for Muslim Crusader Interactions. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brushini Colley.